Welcome to episode 9 of the Behind the Goals podcast. Uh, I'm Alan Russell and with me is Andrew Jenkin. Hello. So we're going to be talking today um, to someone from outside of Scotland, um, Nevo Manny. Um, she's involved with Cork City uh, and also supporters Direct Europe. Um, we had a conversation with her that could have gone on for hours and possibly days. There's just so much to talk about. Um, really enjoy the, the conversation um, with, with her and we hope that you will too. Yeah, Neve. We've known Neve for a, a while now, I think, and we've had the privilege of attending SD Europe events in the in the past year. You went across the court, right, well, yeah. didn't you? Was yeah. it Dublin? Sorry, it was Dublin. It was Dublin. Um, but the Guinness still stayed the same. <laughs> yeah, the Guinness is probably the best that's going to be in the world when you're in Dublin. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we've known Neve for a while, and it was really good to just. I mean, this is a story that I think more, we should know more about in Scotland because you do hear about a few kind of success stories of supporter ownership, but Cork really have, in a very short period of time, become a real pioneer of fan ownership that's right uh, and I, th- I think as well there's parallels between scotland and ireland in terms of about in terms of size of our football clubs uh, the challenges that we face being much smaller than some of the big leagues that get lots of tv coverage mm. internationally yeah. um so there's lots we can learn there but um i don't know if it's just it's a hangover from sort of the 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 irish club's record in european competition in the 80s or 90s we kind of you know, people in Scotland tend to dismiss it as that. Well, they're mm. they're kind of they're um, what's the right word? Cannon fodder for mm. for for the European campaigns. And actually, they don't realise that Scotland sort of clubs are as well. So mm. we've got more in common than we have apart. Lots to learn from there, and a lot of the structures behind the scenes are similar as well. Um, so we we could we could all do a better job of of learning from our our neighbours across the across the Irish Sea. Yeah. So here we go. Okay, so we're joined by Neve. Uh, thank you, Neve, for joining us on your what must be quite a rare day off for you. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a nice um, Fridays are still a bit unusual when we don't have football, so we're looking forward to to getting back into the season and back into the routine now from next week. So fr- Friday football's normal in the in their setup. Yeah, yeah. We uh, most of the games are played on Friday nights. So Cork okay. City play all their home games on Friday nights. Other clubs play Saturday sometimes and depending on the schedule but most of the games are Friday nights which is great because it just means you have floodlights for most of the year and start off and end with floodlights and yeah um, it's a great way to start the weekend as well mm. <laughs> start off by telling us a little bit about yourself Neve and uh, we're talking about Cork City but your role within Cork City and then perhaps now with uh, supporters direct Europe yeah um I guess well most people, anyone from Cork would tell you I'm from Cork because of my accent. Uh, so I was born and bred in Cork, lived there until I was 18. Uh, my dad is from Turner's Cross, which is right next to the ground. And we were taken down to Cork City when we were small. My grandfather in particular was always massively into Irish football and, and just loved talking about all the previous incarnations. We've had a lot of football clubs in Cork over the years. And I guess we got involved. We went down there when we were small, as we say it. And you never escape, I think, once you kind of you know get attached to a club in, in your younger days mm. I even went to one cup cup match replay in my school uniform once which uh, <laughs> which is uh, funny because someone reminded me of it recently um, but I, I moved to Dublin then to study journalism and media um, and that was when the club really got successful in the kind of uh, you know 2008-2009 it was working uh, working full-time in Dublin um, that was around the time that the Supporters Trust Forest started down there and it was it was started in response to we had a really good owner at the time and we just started, you know, the group that was there started to think about, well, what comes after Brian Lennox? Mm. Um, I got involved then directly in the trust when I moved back to Cork in 2010. 
Uh, I went on to be secretary, board member, um, and then got involved with Supporters Direct at the time and then ST Europe mm. through a series of European projects. And these days I actually work for ST Europe full time. Um, so it's really, you know, from, I suppose, going down and, and something I got involved in when I was small, I never really imagined I'd be doing it full time one day. But mm. uh, it's absolutely amazing the people you come across. It's such a positive uh, movement because people want to genuinely make a change and really help their football club usually it's very genuine motives and um you know it's been a it's a, been a massive adventure i suppose both for cork city and forest and for myself in the last couple of years and mostly it has been very good as well that's quite an unusual origin story that forest has got then I mean, I, somebody from um the foundation of hearts um uh, Use this use this phrase that stuck with me ever since, saying, saying you know, trusts are either born out of crisis or conflict. Um, but what you're saying is there there's a third way um, that trust can be set up to say, okay, so things are actually great just now. How do we make sure this continues, or how do we make sure that that, that this great beneficial owner has got something he can pass it over to and and gives us a gives us a solid future. Yeah, very much so. And like I, I would definitely have a saying as well that if, if you need a trust, it's already too late. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. And our, our motto, I suppose, it was funny because we're, we're, Forest will be 10 this August. So 10 years, it's, it's official setup. It was talked about long before 2008. Um, and we're looking to try and document the past 10 years because it is something of a tale. Um, and if you go back, uh, Cork City last won the league title before last season in 2005 and we had this amazing football team like they were extremely talented group of guys really good manager uh, and we had the chairman who was Brian Lennox and we used to sing who needs Abramovich because Brian sells (laughs) lots of chips he was a really good businessman he was focused on Cork soccer as an entity he had a history that linked him with the city and also football in the city um and our you know he he didn't bring in a guy you know a striker that he was under huge pressure to bring in because he was thinking about the sustainability of the football club and paying the bills in the long term mm. and if you think of many of the football chairmen that we hear about today you don't hear that you, mm. you know that yeah. sort of sensible business talk so uh, there was two um Two guys in particular, it would be Sean O'Connell and Pat Shine. Pat Shine has just been re-elected onto the Forest Board, actually. And Sean is a former Forest Board member. And they were law students around 2006, 2007. And they started to draft the idea of a supporters trust for Cork. Um, Very much inspired by Northampton Town, looking at AFC Wimbledon, looking at um, FC United as well. And then what happened, I suppose, trying to keep it short, but Brian, um, you know, he was a single businessman. He had his own business and he was trying to hold the weight of the club on, on his own shoulders. At that time, there would have been supporters around him as volunteers, but also supporters on the board. You know, we would have had this wonderful woman. Um, she passed away just about a year ago, Noelle Feeney. She was like a supporter representative, but she was the heart and, and life of, of the club at, at one point and really was a very vibrant character. Um and, you know, Brian was always very open and, and kind of open to volunteers and stuff. So he, he eventually sold it on. He thought he was selling it to an individual. It turned out it was an investment fund. And if you put those two words together in football, mm-hmm. I think everyone in Cork and I think most people in football today would be very worried about it. And we were right to be worried about it. Um, in 2007, I remember going, we, we won the FAI Cup that year in Dublin. 
and we were in the pub afterwards and I remember the discussion specifically because at that point of time the argument is we have such a fantastic group of players surely more success is inevitable you know this is only the start of the good times and yet 2008 was just financial mess 2009 was even more difficult um, you know, the trust formally launched in 2008, in August 2008, and the very same week the club went into administration because the new regime under the investment fund had just no concept of how to control costs at a football club. Mm. And, you know, some of the examples, and I'm not blaming players in the slightest, but some of the examples where there was um, a striker and a clean sheet bonus. <laughs> um, yep you also had hey defend uh, from the front defend from the front yeah, clean sheet for you or for the opposition <laughs> yeah, but they also forgot to exclude pre-season friendly goals from the goal bonuses oh, wow. so they were also paying out money if you scored against you know a warm-up you know a sort of a, an amateur side or whatever so very fundamental mistakes they they also i believe spent more on rebranding the club's crest than than like than anyone had ever heard of an irish soccer and they hadn't actually brought the supporters into that uh, mm. process and as you can see what just happened with leeds united you mm. know the crest is something very precious to supporters it's mm -hmm. not to be amended or tinkered with lightly and mm. generally it's something that represents much more than just the the graphic itself and the images on it. It, mm. it it's a symbol for a lot of different things um so we started to hear chat that things weren't going so well and needless to say it all very happened very quickly the club went into examinership which is administration uh, i think in the uk um, and immediately the trust was seen as a voice for supporters. And that was really important because usually, you know, you need a port of call and the media was very interested to hear what supporters were thinking about. Um, the, the board that was involved in the trust at that point uh, put things like hardship funds in place. So they were willing to help the staff and also the, the players at the club who then had their wages cut down to 20%. And some of them were even made redundant, at least the off-field staff were. Um, it was a very difficult time because, as I said, we had just had the feeling we had had success on the pitch so this sort of collapsed extremely quickly mm. um, and it should be it's important to know two things I suppose the League of Ireland is seen as one of the most competitive leagues in Europe but until recent years that's generally because whoever won the league was going bust shortly afterwards and then somebody else would come to the top and the same thing would happen so you had a spate of clubs including the likes of Shelburne, Drogheda United uh, you know Shamrock Rovers pre previously where people had success but it wasn't built on sustainable foundations and it just collapsed inwards. We've lost a, a number of clubs over the years. And the second thing that's really relevant for the Cork City story is that we have had a huge amount of different football clubs over the decades. So we have probably had every different variety. We've had a Cork United, Cork Athletic, Cork FC. We had Fordsons because Ford, the car maker, had a football team in the city. Yeah. Um, and none of them ever lasted. And the reason they didn't is because they were not set up in a sustainable fashion. There was always rumours about people taking money under the table or not doing things properly. Um, and it makes total sense. You know, it's the definition of madness if you do the same thing over and over again and expect a different outcome. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons that the trust, we very much say we had to do it differently because you can't keep doing the same thing over and expect a different outcome. Mm. So how did the how did the deal actually come about then? You know, you say the, the club was in administration at the time. Um, were the trust always the favourites to become the, the owner? How did you, you know, come about to own the club? Well, 
yeah, the, it was two years of financial mess. So mm. the club went into uh, examinership in August 2008. And at that point, the trust really didn't, wasn't in a position to, to, to take control. And I, I have to say, we, we never actually expected to be in control of the football club, even within two or three years. Ownership was an aspiration, but it definitely wasn't seen as anything that was going to happen really soon. Um, so out of that examinership period, um, there was another private individual chosen to take over the club. And of course, he got a clean slate. You know, all the debts were wiped clear apart from the football, um, apart from the football debt. So we went into 2009 expecting, um, you know, costs, costs, costs to be cut and, you know, and to maybe see a bit more sensible financial practice. Um, and in fact, we got just the opposite. Uh, it was more of the same spending, you know, it was more of the same kind of, we need to be up at the top of competing, this sort of talk. Uh, and the trust initially tried to work with this guy. Uh, his name is Tom Collin, or as we call him in Cork, he shall not be named. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Tom had made all the right noises initially and talked about giving the club back to the people and talked about working with Forrest and he talked about, you know, depending on volunteers. But I think he quickly realised that dealing with the trust, which at this point was building up a little nest egg and fundraising for itself, the trust has rules. You know, if he needed money, he had to put the request in writing and then the trust needed to call a meeting of members, which would take at least seven days. So there were built in protections and the board was not in a position to act outside of members' wishes. There's a huge amount of protection in a trust mm-hmm. um, and it's a co-op in Ireland. So in um, an industrial and provident society, it's quite similar to the UK. And actually, it was because the rules are stricter than your typical, you know, company limited by guarantee, for instance, that uh, I think protected everybody in those early days. The end of the line was that Tom did not get any money from the trust and it became very quickly uh, obvious in 2009 that he was not going to be able to turn it around and create a sustainable entity. He fell out with the trust. Uh, you know, we had had a, we put a match night committee in place to help him run match night and they were asked to leave. And I think the big turning moment was a, a, a fantastic moment of inaction, if that makes sense. We were due to play Bohemians in a live televised game in like September, October time in 2009. And it, the trust announced that we were going to go onto the pitch and protest at half time, which, as you can imagine, um, yeah. raised eyebrows in the, the FAI to the FAI's credit. They said, if you call off that protest, we will meet you. We'll acknowledge you as stakeholders in this and we will meet you. Um, and uh, the greatest moment of inaction was when the, the forest force asked people not to go onto the pitch and not to protest. And nobody did. And that was a really important moment because it showed that the supporters were behind the trust and listened to the trust and that the trust's leadership were, uh, you know, an inspirational group of people who were from all walks of societies with fantastic experience and were reliable and decent people to deal with. And that reputation building was really was a really important moment. Um, Tom was subsequently banned from all football activities because the, the, the club went back into the courts again, owing money. Um, and at that meeting with the FAI, they did say to the trust, if you're worried about the long term future of the club, you should apply for a license in your own right to participate in the league in 2010. Mm. Um, and that's exactly what happened when the licenses came round in early 2010. The trust was in the middle of trying to to buy out, I suppose, the holding company of Cork City FC, along with two local businessmen. Um, we had voted in favour of being part of that consortium because the trust members, I mean, we didn't know 
how long the money would last. We didn't know if we could do it on our own. So we decided to go with the with the consortium option. And in the end, when the Cork City FC and its holding license failed to get a license and the trust did, we were then left with the option of going it ourselves. And we it was forced upon us. We had no choice. And um you know, 10 years later, we're double champions. So, uh, mm. you know, I, those days, I think, will go down as, you know, some of the most difficult because, you know, the, the board at that time of that trust, they were told, you know, you're going to destroy your football club. You don't know what you're doing. You know, you have to listen to us. We're football people, you know, this sort of attitude. Um, so we uh, got a license. The trust got a license, started to put together a football team. Um, and nine days later, we went and played our first league game up at Derry City. Uh, we expected to be absolutely hockeyed because we had 13 players. Um, and as it turned out, we got a glorious one-all draw. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that would have all of that would have been possible without that intervention by the FAI, giving you that encouragement at that, at that point in time saying, you know, apply, get yourselves ready to take over? because um, it might happen. Um, it's funny because I've been speaking to the people who were involved in, in that time again as, as we prepare to kind of uh, document the history for want of a, a grander phrase. And, you know, I suppose the 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 FAs in many countries get, get criticism for not acting, you know, when they see a club as being run in a poor way and I think that applies yeah. no matter what country you're in. I don't think I don't think supporters think that the FAI the FAs act for the best interests of the clubs at times. But then you have to flip that around. Football clubs are companies and if they're privately owned, the FAI and other FAs are quite limited in what they can do. They have their own rules and regulations, but at the end of the day, you know, the club belonged to Tom and it was his company. Um, so to be fair to the FAI in that scenario, meeting a supporters trust and actually saying, "You look, we're 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 working on this. You know, we want to we want the best possible outcome, but here is one potential solution." It was a very um, it was a very brave thing for them to do at that time. But I think yeah. to be fair, they've had it back in spades because I think once they engaged with 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 that group of of the board that time, they realised that you know at the time you were talking about someone who was involved in the national broadcaster you were talking about someone who was you know senior management in a in a pharmaceutical company you were talking about someone who was a local uh, public representative and went on to be elected to Dáil Éireann you were talking about you know someone who was working with the local council and I know I'm forgetting a few people but they were a very good group of people lots of different skills and experience and I think that's the one thing that supporters trusts fan-owned clubs, SD Europe, Supporters Direct Scotland um, and Sports Direct in, in England, the biggest challenge they face is actually breaking down the perception of supporters as, you know, Asher, they can't, you know, they're going to be taken away with their emotions and they can't make any reasonable decisions whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That change of culture is really yeah. important. As if conventional owners are never over, let their emotions overtake them. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so... Let's fast forward then, 2018, 10 years of the trust, you, you know, you is it 100% ownership of the club you've got now? Yep, absolutely. The trust and the club are actually technically the same legal entity, okay. uh, so the club is a co-op. Yeah, so um, actually that might be a good point to touch upon. So in terms of membership, what the, what the membership level's like? Yeah, the, the membership um, the membership levels, we were always giving ourselves a hard time about until we became part of SD Europe's Clubs and Supporters for Better Governance project. Um, 
what you what you'll see in every membership club is that when there's a crisis there's a spike mm-hmm. and in those early days with the trust every time tom Collin went on radio the membership team saw a spike in membership <laughs> because they said this guy is an idiot i'm going to join the trust um when the club took over so when we got the license and, and played as cork city forest co-op in 2010 we actually hit over 800 members which was kind of a kind of a peak, you know, because I was joining and my sister was joining and my brother was joining and my aunt was joining because they saw this as a very worthwhile cause and the club needed a football club. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as everything is grand hit, which was fairly soon, the, the, the membership numbers dropped it back to about half, so about 400. Um, and as of the last year, there's been a renewed membership drive. I think the success on the pitch has helped, but also the relationships that the trust is building off the off the field with the likes of UCC, and, and uh, we hope to have a centre of excellence in Cork very soon. It means that we've seen a 20% increase in membership, and they're back up to about 550 members now. Um, what we saw from that project, though, with SC Europe, and all the clubs saw this, people are asking, well, why should I be a member? You know, and, I, you know, do I get money off my season ticket or do I get a free jersey? And you're sort of saying, no, you have something much more important than that. You have a say in how this club actually operates and does its business. Um, and what we have found both in Cork and, and across Europe is that, that that idea of having ownership or being members or having a say and an influence, it is of interest to many people, but not everybody. Mm. So, you know, it's up to, to fan-owned clubs to keep talking about the fact that they're very proud of their structure and people can have influence, but it's actually okay that people don't want to be members either. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we wanted to say as well to our members in Cork City and elsewhere is that it's not just about the money, it's also about time. And I think that's where the, the link between supporters trusts fan on clubs and volunteering comes in as well you know mm-hmm. and so the over over that 10 years presumably the governance structures have changed in terms of how you govern the club and, and the people that are involved in uh, you know the ownership of the club how does that work if you're a member how can you get elected to the board and are there other boards that people could join yeah, it's changed quite a bit over the years, I guess. Like I joined the board in early 2010, so I was part of the first the the, the first year of the, the when we were a fan owned club, I guess. I moved back to Cork and was essentially told, uh, "You're coming on the board, right?" And I was like, <laughs> "Okay, maybe." Um, and it was amazingly fantastic in that you have the ability to 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 sort of put into place all those ideas you'd always had as a supporter on the sideline and yet it was equally terrifying because now there was nobody else to point the finger at it was on you you know um and those early days that first year was about getting to the end of the season and paying our bills we were very much firefighting very 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 steep learning curve because there are ways that football works that we wouldn't have been so familiar with behind the scenes and i suppose that's where the initial links with Supporters Direct came in. They were very helpful in just talking to other fan-owned clubs and realising there's a rhythm to a football season. Mm. And once you're used to it and you know it, you know, uh, the, the, the key word in the League of Ireland is always cash flow. You know, you get all your season ticket money at the start of the season and then you look at the, the month where you maybe have one home game and you know you have to keep some of your money for then. So it's about understanding the rhythm of your football season. Um, but what we quickly realised is we've tried a couple of different structures. Initially, we sort of had a, a sub board for the, the football club and a sub board for the trust. That quite didn't work so well. You know, we had two full-time employees initially. Now we have, uh, I think, five at last count. Um, and what we're trying to do currently 
country. Uh, so you would have basically had uh, your membership elect a board every year. Anybody who serves a three-year term should stand down but can run again that same year. That's currently capped at two three-year terms, but we've just put in a new motion that says you can actually run again after six years, but you need to be re-elected every year. Um, that was put in place for burnout reasons. I think anyone who's done six years on a club board needs a break, whether they realise it or not. Yeah. Uh, so you, the, the, some of the basic rules that we have, you need to be up to date with your membership to run for election. You need to be a member for more than a year to run for election to the board. And then we have introduced PR voting. Uh, so uh, proportional representation, you get, you get, you know, if there's six candidates, you get six votes, you rank them one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, just this past January, we had a really great election. We had six people put themselves forward for three seats. Um, each candidate got an opportunity to introduce themselves before the meeting. So uh, by email and the invite that was sent out, they got to introduce themselves. We have a members forum where people could interact and ask questions. And obviously at the meeting themselves, they had, I think it was two to three minutes each to speak and just talk about what they wanted to do with their time on the board. And it's really empowering and it's really energetic to see that sort of interest in the board. Um, two further motions that were brought in, though, because we're really conscious about the structures and trying to get them right. Um, as part of that ST Europe project, Cork City went over to Malmo, who are, I guess, I, I would say a similar club, but just bigger in every context. So their their you know their turnover is five times bigger. Their stadium is five times bigger, um, but they they have a very similar ethos, you know, to, to Cork. We know them as well because we played them in the Intertoto Cup in two thousand and four, uh, and we beat them. We knocked them out. <laughs> wow. beat them leg. That's very important to put in there. Yes, <laughs> quite right. Um, but from that learning, then what's come and was just approved was uh, an advisory board. So this this board would have no um, power as such. What they are there is as a group of advisors to the to the main board. Uh, what we found is that being a board member can be quite lonely at some points. You know, if you want to discuss something, but you want to discuss it out and, you know, have that discussion with yourself, that advisory board will be there now. So they would be people who are former board members, maybe people from the business community. And the whole idea is to support the board members as they mm. go through um, as they go through uh, their own, you know, you know, being a board member, there's a lot of weight on you. There's a lot of financial stuff you need to take in. There's a development stuff you need to take in uh, and the second element of that governance improvement this year was the introduction of an election committee and again this is something from Malmo so this would be a smaller group of people who will look at is the board working so not controlling the board again no power but going how well is it working you know can we spot future board members in tow we have a series of working groups and that's how we try and sort of pinpoint you know future board members can we get them involved in these working groups and really give them a sense of you know what being on the board is about and also out of that st europe project and something i think that's really well worth considering for every fan-owned club um, this year, Cork City and Forest hosted an, a board information day, and it was as exciting as it sounds. It was a day where anyone thinking about running from the board came, met the accountant, met the solicitors, met the current board members, former board members, and really got an understanding of what being involved in the board is about, you know, how much in influence you actually have. Uh, the board is very much trying to be more strategic 
and less involved in day-to-day operations. We do have a general manager and we do have staff to look after. You know, mm. I remember one board meeting in 2010 where we discussed lawnmower blades for about an hour and it was <laughs> you know, just horrific. So there's no more lawnmower blade discussions. You know, it's very much, you know, five-year development plan, looking to the future, trust development, um, the ethos of the club, you know, looking after volunteers, and then you leave the guys there. You give the the full time staff the time and respect to actually do their day to day job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Two projects you mentioned a bit earlier would be nice to touch upon. The partnership you've got with University College Cork, which, by all intents and purposes, seems quite unique in terms of you know university partnering with a, a professional football club, and also the Centre of Excellence that is coming to Cork. Perhaps you could just touch upon those two. Yeah, the the uh, the deal with UCC. Um, I was at the launch when when it was publicly confirmed, and I I was quite emotional actually because it's been such a long time for Forest, and it's been such a difficult, you know, couple of years to get through, and it's been it's been a roller coaster. I don't think that is a. Um, you know, I think that's a really apt kind of description of football in general, because you can have just these massive highs and then you're just plummeted straight down quite immediately afterwards. Yeah. The the relationship with UCC came around because initially, a couple of years back, we were interested in, in possibly purchasing the same area of land. And that was when things started, that discussion started as, as, as small as that. Um, they then came on board as you know, sponsors of the club. So, you know, they uh, allowed our players facilities to their sports or they, they allowed our players access to their sports facilities, which are top class. Um, and one of our former players who plays in, in the Premier League still described them and he said they, they're better than what some Premier League clubs have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our players got access to that. And it developed then in the sense that we wanted to give some of our younger guys the opportunity to, to, um, go to university and to have scholarships. One of the unique things about Forest that has always been there, we we include in our statutes the importance of education. We have a legal obligation to you know to promote education and to to talk about its benefits. It's something we're extremely proud of. And that fit in with UCC so well. I think as they got to know us, they realised that we were trying to do something very different here. Um, and when um, Dr. Michael Murphy was actually announcing that the, there are our main club partners now, there are front to shirt sponsors, it really started to hit home, I guess, that there are entities now within the city and county and around Ireland that really do regard Forest as, you know, this wholesome entity that has done an awful lot of good in Irish football. And, you know, when you think about the beginnings and the little acorns of where this started to have that sort of relationship with the with the university, um, why it works is because we're both interested in education. We're both interested in doing things properly. We're both interested in providing another way for young people, you know, and actually saying you can play football, but you can also get an education and it shouldn't affect either one we're extremely proud of that link up and I think you know if you ask most supporters or most clubs what type of entity would you like to support your club and be on your front of shirt I think a university that holds itself up you know um, it's a university of for for sanctuary now so they're going to be allowing uh, asylum seekers um, Mm. go there now in the in the coming years and and Cork is is looking to be a city of sanctuary as well and these are the sort of things we're extremely proud to be linked with Mm -hmm. Um, and then outside of that what has come around and probably the most exciting project I think Cork City and Forest are currently working on 
Uh, if you go back to the years, unfortunately, like most other clubs around many parts of Europe, Cork City has never really had a permanent home. Um, we did previously have a stadium and, it, you know, that project pretty much bankrupted the club previously. Uh, it just didn't work. The pitch was always floodlit, you know, was always flooded and uh, it was on the outskirts of the city. It was hard to get to. There was no hospitality. So we, we now play in Turner's Cross for all our home games. But the FEI is building a centre of excellence in Cork. And with the help of Forest and the Forest Board, um, Forest were able to pinpoint um, uh, a particular greenfield site and we're able to get Cork County Council on board. That site now has full planning permission for, you know, a state-of-the-art, several pitches, a pavilion, offices, education space, artificial turf, goalkeepers training area, you name it. Um, it is to be a home for, for Irish soccer in Cork, and it will be run day-to-day by Forrest, um, which is obviously an extremely exciting development. And we're hoping to get final confirmation on the finances for that in the coming months, you know, sooner rather than later. And I suppose for us, that really does reflect how far Forrest has come from those first initial ideas of wanting something alternative to building a relationship with the FAI that I suppose um, both of us would consider, both parties would consider very strong now to the fact that, you know, we could run, a, we could be seen to be able to run a facility like that as a supporters trust and to have that faith and, and um, uh, confidence. It's, um, it's, it's been, it's been amazing, you know, and I suppose the only thing, this all sounds very fairy tale like there've been really <laughs> difficult moments and all of that as well. And, you know, there's always ups and downs and, you know, when you're double champions as we are, well, actually we have six trophies this year, but, uh, because our ladies team won the FBI cup, our under 17s won their national league. And we also won a regional cup in the president's cup last season. Um, it's, I think we're we're there to be taking pot shots at now, you know, and it's harder, I guess, to maintain your position than to, to achieve it in the first place, I think. Mm. When I think of the progress that you've made there and the, the, all these different aspects you're describing, the word that comes to mind there is trust. You are a trust, but you're also trusted by the supporters to run the club for them and for them to give money to you and, and deal with it and handle that responsibly. Uh, you're trusted by the local community to... Um, to build that asset in the football club that makes them proud to be uh, to be associated with Cork and to be from Cork. You're trusted by the National Association uh, that they're investing in Cork rather than anywhere else. And those tie-ins, those partnerships with, with the university, um, you know, they're, they're seeing you as, as not just a, an entity that's about putting a football team on the park and getting results. You're actually doing something that's, that's a positive demonstration of their ethos about uh, improving, improving people through education. So I think that 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 word of trust, I, I think it's it's a, it's a very very powerful word, and it, it means a lot to me. And you see trust at lots and lots of clubs, but you're actually the embodiment of it in so many ways, and and you've been recognised for that by all those different mm. stakeholders. Yeah, and it, you know, I think the big difference is is that uh, in 2010, the reputation of Cork City Football Club was just in the gutter. You know, mm. it was. We had the previous owners had burnt so many bridges and embarrassed the city, embarrassed players, had left sponsors embarrassed. You know, anyone associated the club was literally embarrassed to be associated with the club. Um, and Forrest, from that examinership period in 2018, had start had been the voice of reason and had been the voice of people who were passionate about what they did. Um, and you, you cannot underestimate, uh, you know, we always say it now, Cork City FC's reputation in the city today is amazing. 
but those first couple of years it was people connected with forests um and we had one particular sponsor i think they're still with us and they're going to be the main shirt sponsor for our women's team uh in 2018 it's clonakilty black pudding which i think is a name that's starting to grow in the uk uh, they're famous here for their sausages and their black pudding which is amazing i have to say their food's amazing <laughs> um they give it out free at turns cross sometimes you can just see the hordes just kind of <laughs> you know closing in because you're just like yes please and i'll take more if you have it um but i remember in the you know we got promoted back to the premier division and because uh, so, we did have to start in the first division in, in 2010 we were promoted in 2011 and at the start of the 2012 season we were we were kind of short on options for front of shirt and we had a meeting with Clana Kilty with Colette and her team and the the new CEO at the time sort of brought two or three of us in and said like the trust is the key here you know um, and when we sat down and explained the the structure and the fact that if they were at Turner's Cross giving out food on match nights, they'd be standing right next to us in volunteer jackets. That's what struck them, that they, the people who owned the club were the people around them and in the stands and, you know, the people who would have volunteers jackets on. It wasn't some um, corporate entity with no face and a load of suits every so often in the VIP area. Um, and the fact that we still have such a strong relationship with Clonakilty, I think, attests to both them as a as a business uh, and the interest that they have in, in the community and developing the community but also I think it reflects very strongly on forests and um, you know I suppose we wanted to do things differently we had a very basic saying that I think it sums it all up and that is that you know the trust was about crossing t's and dotting i's it was about treating people with respect it was about and one key thing is, you know, there is always a push to increase players' wages, but fundamentally we want to be able to make sure we will be able to pay all the wages that we agree to pay. And that's more important than than other aspects. Now, saying that, um, just this winter we've introdu introduced 52-week contracts, nothing close to, to what the levels used to be at some point. But the idea is we want to, to give the players every respect we can. And in return, I think this, the, the supporters and the players have a very tight relationship as well. It's, it, it all ties in together. But I think if you have your ethos right, yeah, at the very heart of it, and you spoke about it, Alan, the word trust, um, it's it's everything. And you, you, can't, you can't build or repair a reputation if it's damaged. It's something that you need to work on all the time. It's you need to protect it year in, year out, month in, month out. Um, and that's why I think, you know, AGMs and members meetings, they keep the board honest. You know, they're asked lots of questions. And that's that's a really important part of democracy, to hold people accountable. But to also remember that the board are volunteers. So even if they have made a mistake, they are doing it in a voluntary capacity. And, you know, they have the capacity to learn. So um, I think that's probably the biggest thing to learn. A lot of people think that you know, fan ownership, it's easy, it's a breeze. It's as difficult as running any other type of football club and probably even more so because democracy is slower you need to focus on transparency you need to focus on member engagement but the difference is and you know i know a lot of different people hand and heart uh, it's like, like no other experience or social connection it's you literally your football club you know and 
Um, I probably wasn't so much emotional when we won the league because we were looked like we were going to win it for a long time. But the the cup final when we managed to get the double, and I was there with my family and you know my uh, my cousin and her kids, and just surrounded by people that you know. And you know that's the sort of time when it really hits home that we've done something uh, we can be extremely proud of. But because we're from Cork, you know our our aim now is to dominate. You know. Yeah. <laughs> um. Moving moving forwards, you're doing a couple of roadshows, aren't you? You're doing roadshows across the uh, across the area just to raise awareness of the trust and how people can get involved. Yeah, that was one thing as well. We uh, Cork City learned an awful lot from that ST Europe uh, Erasmus mm. project. That this idea, uh, well, we've no shame in saying it was robbed. Um, <laughs> All the best uh, ideas from are. Schalke. <laughs> So Schalke have this amazing ambassadors program where I suppose we all know that Schalke is like, it's an, an amazing match day experience, but they have supporters across Germany. And what they did was they reached out to all these different areas in Germany and actually tried to appoint an ambassador or two to kind of make the Schalke name locally and to bring people together locally. So for instance, there is an ambassador in in. I, I assume more than one in Berlin and they would bring Schalke people together to, to watch a Schalke match or just have a meeting about Schalke. So they kind of spreading their tentacles. And, and the Forest Roadshow is something very similar. Um, it has been uh, driven by one or two of the board members and we've gone, uh, the trust has gone out into North Cork already and also the, the South Parish, so the southern side of the city. And in the coming weeks, it's it'll be on the north side of the city. And the whole idea is, you know, pick a community hall, set up a few tables, have different people there who can speak to people who come in about how can I volunteer? How can I be a member? You know, this is our underage structure. This is our legal structure. This is our community element. Um, and it gives a chance to for people to come in and meet us and say hello. And the, the two things that have come out of that, we've already signed up a number of additional volunteers and the club is all, or the trust has also signed up a number of new members. Um, but it's a I suppose one of the, the toughest things that trusts come across is I think they assume a bit too much that people know who they are. Mm. You have to keep getting that message out there. And that's what the, the roadshows in particular help mm. with, because, you know, you think people get a chance to ask all the questions that they might not put up a hand in a public meeting or they, they might be wondering because they saw a bit in the program there last season, but they were wondering about it. Um, and I think it's it's a much easier sell in person when they can see here's a real life person and, and they're very much part of this and, and love being involved in it, you know? Yeah, we can all, all, often think that we've made things perfectly clear because we've said them so many times, but we forget that we we may have said them many times, but people have only heard it once, if that. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. it's different people every time, so, yeah. And, you know, there's a very different way of connecting with young people on social media and Snapchat versus the guy who comes every two weeks for the last 40 years and he reads the program and he mightn't read the local paper or he might not get the program at all and relies on the local paper for all his knowledge. Mm. Um, so, you know, for the, the art of communication, as they say, it's never perfect and it's never enough and there's always improvements to be made. Um, but I think as well, you know, it's a sign of the football club and how successful it is that lots of people are talking about Cork City. So we're trying to, I suppose, piggyback on that and ensure people understand the role Forrest have played in, in that as well. Mm. Um, your reference to Schalke and Malmo there kind of leads quite nicely into SD Europe. So you mentioned Cork City were part of a wider SD Europe programme. And, and I, I guess you've swiftly followed as well in terms of getting involved with SD Europe in a personal capacity. 
Yeah, so um, Forest was involved in ST Europe's first European project, uh, which was the improving football governance through supporter involvement and community ownership. They really like their long titles. And and that saw supporters in Ireland, different supporters groups and clubs in Ireland come together for the first time and actually kind of put together a handbook for supporters interested in being involved in their football clubs. Mm. And I remember at the time I was very involved in it on behalf of Forrest. Um, the, the, the facial expressions when you told someone that Europe had given you money to work on football governance and then <laughs> in the League of Ireland, they were just like, you know, what? Um, and it brought together and got people talking for the first time. So Forrest started to get just emails and calls going, look, we'd like to do something similar. Like, can you can we talk to you about it? And that's, I guess, around the same time I, I had gone to a supporters direct meeting myself in 2010 uh, and then kind of were kept in touch with some of the clubs. We were invo- invited to be part of that European project. And then that naturally led on to the clubs and supporters for better governance and football project. So that's just literally ended. It was two year um, EU funded but also with support from UEFA. And I, I don't think, I know I'm biased, but I don't think I'm lying when I say it's been fantastic. Um, it brought together six uh, member-run clubs from across Europe and five national supporters organisations. Andrew, I think you were in Gales Accursion with us and Alan, you were in Dublin with That's us. Right. And it's a fantastic group of people who are just, no matter the size they are, there is relevant challenges to discuss and, and kind of brainstorming of new ideas. Um, and it really has, I goes, it just has, is so clearly demonstrated the impact that talking and dialogue and, you know, some, some learning and training sessions. The cool thing about it is we didn't, we had a couple of external people, but most of the training sessions were actually just everybody in mm. the project sharing what they already knew and did. Um, so the potential for, developing it, expanding it, um, getting more clubs involved. Um, I think, you know, when you have a private owner in charge of a club, his or her ambitions, you know, are kind of probably very much linked in with their own personal experiences. My own view is that supporters are the most ambitious clubs that support, you know, that, that, that a club can have. We're never happy. We always want more. And that kind of feeds into to this project because we're, you know, supporter-owned clubs, I think we're always looking to improve, always looking to be stronger, more sustainable, better, incorporate all that extra work in the community. The underage, it's never just about the senior team, the senior men's team, we want a senior ladies team. And that project has really allowed us to do that. And even more excitingly, we're now embarking on a, a third European project um, for the next two years. It's called Liaise and it's about developing and implementing the supporter liaison officer role. So I know that's something that is really striking a chord in Scotland at the mm. moment. Um, and we hope to, to involve you guys as much as we can. But it's essentially, uh, I suppose, entities from eight different countries, you know, same same sort of ideal. We're going to bring them together for some training workshops, uh, a series of exchange visits where people can learn more about the role in depth. And we come out with some very robust action plans for implementation and also hopefully um, a new annex a new SLO annex for the the um, police and supporters handbook the EU handbook that police have uh, mm. with dealing with supporters um, and again you know that that wouldn't really be possible without the the European Union's belief in in you know supporting grassroots sport and um, in bringing people together from across Europe and I guess it has to be mentioned UEFA have been hugely supportive of it again so 
in different ways. Um, the ST Europe, you know, the, the, the new, I suppose, ST Europe has been independent uh, since 2016. Uh, and this is only the, the start of it, really. I see some really exciting times ahead. Um, and, you know, I think that's kind of best summed up by when, you, when you're part of that group that was in Dublin or, or Gelsikirche. It's a really open, warm, welcoming group because everybody there is just so anxious to learn what they can, to share their stories and to, to see other people succeed. And that's not always something you see in a group that's growing as it is. I would absolutely echo that. I mean, the, the, the dynamic there, the atmosphere um, was so welcoming at that, that meeting in Dublin. Uh, a really fantastic event and great group of people. And just to get that little glimpse of that project as it was at the tail end of that project was, was quite quite amazing. Mm. And uh, and again, I mean, I, you're right, I was at Gelsakirk and I was also fortunate enough to join you in Malmo as well. And just the, the sheer level of um, knowledge in each of those rooms is just overwhelming. I can remember Pontus from uh, Malmo just sharing so much information. And it's that kind of ethos of sharing so everyone can benefit, which I think is um, not common enough within football in general. People are so you know sacred about sharing everything that's happening within their club, um, which means that no one gets to learn from any mistakes. Yeah. And I think that kind of ethos is so important to the development of the game going forward. Um, I was also lucky enough to join you in Vienna for your latest SLO uh, workshop. Um, and it would just be really interesting, I guess, to find out more about your liaise programme and, and what kind of... Um, activities will be happening as part of that yeah that uh that workshop was actually really great it was two days focused entirely uh and it was i suppose directed at slo coordinators as opposed to supporter liaison officers themselves mm. but i think we got so much insight and information that it just gets us really excited and enthused about what else might be possible yes, um yeah i think the the magic of the supporter liaison officer role, uh, and I find it really strange when people don't understand how much potential it has, mm. you know, to bring all of stakeholders together to talk on match night. It sounds simplistic, but I, I suppose maybe that's where the challenge lies. In talking out something and just putting a point across, you don't necessarily have to agree, but for, for a, like a conduit or a focal point to be solely there to give supporters a voice and say, you do not rely in, you know, having a big number of police, it kind of, it's a sign of aggression. And maybe if you had less police, there would be less um, tension. You know, or maybe it is that supporter liaison officer that's just talking about the fact that supporters need to be heard during the week outside of match night in a club and giving them that voice. Um, it's such a simple idea just to have that someone representing a supporter's voice. Um, we're really usually excited about liaise. It just uh, it's going to run two years from this January, so there are going to be three workshops again. So you'd have uh, one on supporter liaison, which will be April. Uh, we will have one later in the year on an integrated safety, security and service approach to match night. Again, that's getting everybody talking to each other. And then there'll be a third workshop next year on support engagement. Mm. And then for all the entities that are involved, there are going to be a series of exchange visits. Um, and at the end of it, as I was saying, that there will be those action plans and then the, the annex to the, the EU police handbook. Um, the, 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 what's really exciting, I guess, and what we're, you know, is that it will help us identify what is really good practice around the supporter liaison officer role 
And then in that case, it doesn't matter where you are. You could be in Scotland, Ireland, you could be in Israel, you'd be in Norway, you'd be in Cyprus, Italy. Um, all of these best practices are something that you can take and, and bring into your own local area, your FA, your club, and make it relevant for what's going on there. Um, I think the one thing that's really clear about football, whether it's our, our governance project or this liaise project, is that there's no one size fits all. So what's really important is just to hear the lots of different stories from different groups so that you can actually develop your own way forward. Mm. And that's something I think ST Europe is really strong on. We're never going to tell you what to do, but what we can do is give advice. We can share case stories, case studies. We can, you know, let you know what worked in a particular club or what didn't work. And then it's up to everybody individually to take what they need to back to their own football clubs and groups and, and make progress from there. Um, and, you know, I suppose the way I like to describe what we do is if you think of business, we all know that networking is extremely important in business. You know, if you're running a shoe shop, you should talk to people running shoe shops all over the world. Um, and it's the same principle that applies. As, as one, one of you guys mentioned, I think it was you, Alan, like people are really reluctant to share information sometimes. And I think it's a little bit easier with fan-owned clubs because we realize that we're coming from the same background. Yeah. Um, but I also, I also see it generally in football. You know, people are starting to see that instead of fighting a battle on your own as one individual club there's you know there's there's an awful lot of power in coming together and having collective objectives with people um and i suppose that's what the st europe network allows you know any clubs that are part of that and we're always welcome for more so uh you know if there's any any of your members andrew or anyone in in scotland that wants to reach out and be a part it's equally important to say that there is no expectations there's no limitations there's no exclusiveness about this it's just a very open network that's there to support uh, everybody else and what they're trying to do. I mean, ultimately, football clubs should only really be competing on the field. Um, and sometimes, you know, across when you're looking at Europe, uh, your example of Cork and Malmo drawing each other in the, the Intertoto Cup, you are competing uh, there directly. But actually, you know, there's very little that you're, you're in competition about off the field. Um, you're not going to either support Cork or Malmo, um, you can help each other, you can collaborate and uh, coordinate and share best practice uh, across the whole of Europe. And it's not really going um, to hurt anybody, any club to, to be sharing that, that way. Yeah, I think so. And I think the magic of it is any club that you go to, people are so proud that you're visiting them and want to yeah. hear their story. It yeah. doesn't matter if you're Schalke, it doesn't matter if you're Kava United, it doesn't matter if you're Cork City, and it doesn't matter, you know, if if you're a basketball club or, you know, or, or you know, we have rugby league clubs as well that are fan owned. Um, the, the, I read a really beautiful article there yesterday and it just talked about the difference of, you know, uh, there's this conflict between this, this sense of ownership or a sense of belonging. Um, and I think if, if we have these connections to football clubs that are just, uh, it kind of goes beyond, it is in that sort of same way that family is just part of you, you know, your football club is just part of you. Um, I think we, we all have this beautiful sense of being involved in something, you know, it's not just about the football. For me, I, I find football quite relaxing most of the time. 
I should say, but I like sitting and watching the game and seeing how it pans out and actually, um, as well as winning, obviously. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, like it's the social aspect. It's knowing yeah. people and especially in the League of Ireland. Like I'm, I love the League of Ireland. I'm a League of Ireland fan because you can go to any club. You probably know people. You'll always get a hello. You know, it's always a very open atmosphere. Now that summer soccer's come along, it's generally better crack as well. Um but that inherent belonging to a football club is the same reason that we're happy to help anybody that comes along. It's not a selfishness. You know, we want others to succeed because, you know, there was a, a time back in the financial difficulties. I think it was 2000 and I'm going to say it's probably 2009. Um, and there was a period we thought that the club was going to go like it looked like the, the judge had no had no option but to, to kind of um, shut it down. So there was a couple of hours that we thought the club was gone. And a lot of people were coming up to me going, oh, that's really sad. And you're going, you have no idea what you're talking about. Like, mm. And then it's only a football club, you know, and you're like, you have no idea what you're talking about. Because, <laughs> you know, it's not about watching the players. It's about everything else that comes with the football club. And I can understand the people who, if their football club goes, just can't give your, their heart to anybody else. Um, so our view is always, and my view still is, with SD Europe today, if we can help supporters and prevent anyone else from having those couple of hours where you thought something so precious to you was gone um well then we're happy to do it and happy to do it on a saturday night or at eight o'clock in the morning or skype calls or you know in any means shapes or forms because um you know football has such a capacity to make real change in people's lives it's it's something that can hide magic in it you know we you know you see these wonderful community projects and initiatives and a football club can do that you know maybe not somebody in a suit or a doctor or a normal person walking into a room can do that Mm. um and i think that's that's why we all do it that kind of ties us nicely to the end. But there is one thing I want to ask you about, which is um, something that's been in the news this week, which is around the 50 plus one rule in Germany. Um, there seems to be quite a lot kicking around about that being under threat. And I just wondered what SD Europe's uh, position on that was. I think I, I know the answer, but it'd just be good to hear it from from your perspective, Neve. Yeah, I mean, we'd be really strong on this. I think 50 plus one is integral to everything that's great about German football. And, um, you know, I don't think it's any surprise the amount of people now going to Bundesliga games to watch it. Because when you're standing in the Veltens Arena and you're watching the Nord, Nord Curve and it's in full flow. It's just incredible. You can feel like the, the hair is standing up in your neck and you just want to just be part of it you know um the the german football when you go there they have a real sense of belonging to their clubs and you know from st europe's point of view i think i think we would say 50 plus one is 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 integral to german football the evs which are the likes of schalke that still maintain 100 percent control over all of their their shares are you know, under pressure, you know, I suppose the German football model is looking at the Premier League and thinking, look at their money and the wages they can play without realising actually what they have themselves is pretty special. Yeah. And I think we see that quite a bit, you know, and we would have seen it in the past with the with the Premier League when perhaps there wasn't so much money in the game. They would have looked at La Liga and thought, well, we need to get mm-hmm. there instead of appreciating what they do have. At, mm. at their own time so um 50 plus one i think is something we'll definitely be trying to see how we can support the groups the active groups in germany and see how if, if we can you know raise the profile and the importance of this the dfb 
EFL has now talked about having an open discussion about 50 plus one. I don't think, I think most of the clubs, and it's very clear over the last couple of years, clubs do see the benefit of having 50 plus one. Um, you know, their relationship with supporters is just second to none. The cost of going to football, the atmosphere in the grounds. Um, and, you know, there's a certain amount of, of us that are looking at the Premier League and just wondering if it can still continue and grow the way it has been. I think most people would think like any financial cycle that, you know, it would be hard to see it the money increase exponentially forever. Mm. So you need yeah. to be careful what you wished for. And I do think it is time that German supporters, uh, I suppose, realise what they have, appreciate what they have and stand up and make their voices heard. Yeah, absolutely. The grass isn't always greener. And uh, I think, uh, I suppose the other thing to say is one of the, and you're, you will have know, heard this as well, Neve, is whenever I've worked and I've perhaps spoken to a chairman of a club and they say, well, we are a fan owned club because I'm a fan of the club. And, <laughs> and, you know, I always maybe touch upon West Ham are owned by local, supposedly local fans of the clubs, but their supporters are particularly unhappy of how they run. And I just, I just guess that, you know, it shouldn't be underestimated how important collective ownership of clubs are in terms of how close fans feel to their clubs and, uh, you know, is that clubs dis- lose their identity, I think. Is that distinction you made earlier, Neve, uh, between ownership and belonging? Mm. So what you really get from fan ownership is, is that sense of belonging, which is, 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 is infinitely more powerful than, than just saying, oh, yeah, we own this. Yes. Yeah, it's the difference in many ways of, uh, you know, if you, if you uh, lease one of these go-karts, you don't really, you know, it's nothing to you. You'll get it up and you pick it up when it's handy and you put it back down again and you don't think any more about it. But as soon as you buy a car, it's yours. You need to service it, you need to wash it, you need to clean it. Uh, if anything happens to it, you know, it'll make your life a little bit worse if you don't have a car, once you're used to having a car. Um, but the interesting thing in German football is they don't they don't call themselves owners. They, they, they just think it's naturally part like you're a member of your club that's a natural thing to them and I suppose it's 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 interesting as well to look at Sweden very much when you're looking at 50 plus one because back in 2012 they came under pressure they're 50 plus one uh there was a move within the within the the soccer clubs or the football clubs to to actually uh change the rules that said that they have to be 50 plus one clubs and the SFSU the Swedish supporters union actually did a very effective campaign and it was a grassroots campaign because what they did was that they mobilized supporters within each individual Swedish football club to reiterate their commitment and their club's commitment to 50 plus one, which meant that when it went up to league level, the clubs were telling the league, well, no, our members want it to be 50 plus one. So we're staying 50 plus one. And because the league and FA are members associations in their own right they had to follow what their members wanted in turn um and it's a very simple you know i i I get that one an awful lot as well andrew you know well i'm a fan of the club and i'm the chairman the important thing in here is is allowing people have a meaningful say so if i'm the private individual of a club even if i'm a fan or not i'm the ultimate decision maker and for us at st europe it's the same for st scotland it's the same for supporters direct in the uk what we're saying is that supporters need to be part of decision-making processes and that it will make the game better and more sustainable in the long run. Because if you have someone who is thinking about 20 years down the line, 30 years down the, ta- the line, about having a community programme, about having a great atmosphere in the ground, you're not talking solely about how much money are we going to make this year. And that holistic view comes from supporters because managers come and go, players come and go, 
break our hearts quite often. Mm-hmm. Um, chairmen come and go, owners come and go, and it's the supporters that are there at the end of the day, usually with the crest and holding the pieces. And, you know, one of my favorite moments in the ST Europe job so far was uh, one person that got in touch and said, you know, how can we ask, how can we get people to stop asking stupid questions at the AGM? <laughs> And my response is, this is democracy. You know, this is the beauty of it. And, you know, if it's your club and you have a share, you can ask whatever you want. You can ask, you know, I think we had one motion uh, at some point to Cork City about, uh, can we ask the FBI if they put a big screen into the ground? You can, we can ask, you know. Uh, and I had a, another member who said to me, will you ask the manager, can we sign Miroslav Klose? I said, absolutely. I will t- I'll ask the manager if we can sign him. No problem. There are no um, stupid questions, only stupid answers. Exactly. And, you know, it, it's, that's what will give the club uh, a more rounded view. If you have different voices, if you have different viewpoints, and if you have different uh, expertise and perspectives, if you bring all of that together, you come out with something really interesting, usually something sustainable. Whereas if you allow you know, a small number to dominate, maybe they don't have that wider view. Maybe they, they're not taking into account the voice of younger supporters in the ground of older supporters in the ground, of women, of disabled supporters, you know, of the commandos who want to be able to sing and dance and want to be able to stand. It's important that all those voices are heard and that's what a collective supporters trust or a member-run club gives you. Mm. That seems like the perfect way to bring this interview to a close. So thank you very much for your time, Neve. It was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, brilliant, Neve. Thank you. No problem. I hope I didn't talk too much. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so there we go. That was Neve. Absolute pleasure. As Asan said at the start of the show, we could have gone on for days talking to Neve. Just what a, a fountain of knowledge. That's right, yeah. Um, you know, anytime we talk with people outside the Scottish game that we're a little bit less familiar with the mm-hmm. work they've done, it really strikes me that there's so much to learn. Um, and as we touched on at the end of the conversation there with Neve, uh, football clubs only compete, compete with each other for 90 minutes on the field. The rest of the time, uh, there's so many opportunities for collaboration, for learning, uh, for just sharing of ideas. That's certainly the tone of the um, Supporters Direct Europe uh, event that I was at in Dublin and the ones that, that Andrew talked about on the on the uh, the conversation with Neve as well. Uh, that atmosphere of walking into a room where people people's heads were up yeah they're looking around for new ideas and they're also so proud to share their own ideas and experiences you know and not and they're not not just put, putting a nice gloss on their stories they're telling you warts and all the things that they've experienced mm. because they want you to learn from the hard things as well as from the good things that they've experienced mm. uh, so it's great atmosphere in those events um very sort of obviously very cosmopolitan being mm. a, a sort of pan-european organization uh, also makes me realize what we're potentially losing um um, as you know, the UK kind of closes down its borders and becomes yeah. more insular and more inward-looking. Yeah, hopefully we won't lose as much as that as as, as we could. But I mean, it, even uh, as as we talked about there, the last SLO event I went to, and okay, that was for the national associations as opposed to the kind of supporter organisations. But I learned so much from the different national associations there, and that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for UEFA and SD Europe putting that to, event together, yeah. learning things from. Okay, this is how SLOs operate in Germany. They have a course, a university yeah. course. SLOs yeah. can go on, for example. You know, just getting that. In thinking we could try that we could try that picking the best yeah. bits from every country so yeah, those organizations acting as the catalyst for those conversations between clubs to happen yeah um, and absolutely 
absolutely. And hopefully this is this podcast will help us as SD Scotland do that to some extent in Scotland. Yeah. So, um, yeah. We'll continue to try and bring you stories from across the world of football, not just uh, within Scotland and not just the, the things that you, you're possibly already familiar uh, mm. with, although those stories are great as well. Absolutely. Um, you can get in touch with the show. Any feedback that you have is always welcome. And we're on Twitter, as you'll know, hopefully, which is SUP Direct Scotland, S-U-P-P Direct Scott. And uh, we can be emailed, can't we? Yeah, it's behind the goals at hotmail.com. And uh, hopefully you enjoyed this this week's chat. Uh, next week we're going to have Andrew Jennings on the show, journalist. Of course, yeah, yeah, which oh, is wow. exciting. I feel, no disrespect to the the names we've had on, but big name. Yeah, Andrew Jenkins, uh, Jennings. Is a, is a, <laughs> Andrew, Andrew, Jen- <laughs> Andrew Jenkins is a great guy. Andrew Jennings is also a, a great guy. I mean, he's known across the world of football for being one of the agitators that gave Sepp Blatter a really hard time, mm-hmm. uh, and was researching and publishing a for a lot of years before that fall of FIFA a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, fascinating guy to talk to. Mm. Um, and it, it, he was writing about the, the collapse of FIFA before it was kind of yeah. reported on more widely, wasn't he? He That's was right. really investigating the corruption in there. So yeah. looking forward to having him on the show. Yeah, so Andrew Jenkins and Andrew Jennings, all the one. <laughs> I'll feel out of place on that conversation. <laughs> uh, but until then, thank you very much for your attention and we'll, we'll speak to you next week. Okay, goodbye. Goodbye.